If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is John. I get to serve as the lead pastor here, and I want to invite you, if you've not already, to open a Bible that's near you to the book of Philippians chapter 2, and I'd like to invite you to join me first in a word of prayer. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son, today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron, you will dash them into pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule of trembling kiss the son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment blessed are all who take refuge in him Lord today we are reminded of how volatile things can be in our world and we're also reminded in so many ways through this passage in Philippians as well as many other psalms that talk about your rule and reign over all things Thank you, Lord, that you are king. Thank you that your kingdom is not threatened at all by any earthly political power. And thank you, Lord, for revealing to us not just that you are king, but what kind of king you are. As we look at this passage in Philippians 2, we pray that you, Holy Spirit, would open our eyes. That you would give us the ability to see Jesus clearly. We ask that as we see him clearly that you would help us to rejoice in who he is. Help us to be moved by the goodness that you have demonstrated in sending him. We pray that you would help us to leave here today changed people. And we ask us all in the name of our king, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen. Well, for the last couple months now, actually, We've been in the book of Philippians, and the passage that we're looking at today is uh, really important, uh, very, very important for the entire book of Philippians, but it's also important in the entire scope of the Bible as well. If we sort of think about the landscape of Scripture, uh, the landscape of the story of the Bible like a mountain range, there are passages that are sort of high points, that are sort of mountaintops, that do Uh, in some ways, uh, uniquely communicate to us about the goodness of God and about who he is and what he's done for us. And this passage that we're looking at here today in the book of Philippians that is referred to by many people, you may have heard this called the Christ hymn, Uh, so I'm going to use that language throughout our time here today, but this Christ hymn that we're looking at today is one of those mountain peaks in the story of the Bible. 
It's one of those places that uniquely, in a powerful way, communicates to us about who God is and what he's done for us in his son Jesus. But specifically within the book of Philippians, this passage plays a very important role. It has an important purpose. This passage here in chapter 2, these verses that you heard read just a moment ago, are the focal point of the entire book of Philippians. They're the central parts of this book. And so everything that Paul says to these believers in the city of Philippi, every piece of instruction, every piece of encouragement, every piece of exhortation, everything Paul says to them is grounded in these verses and what we learn about who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus in these few verses that we're looking at here today. This Christ hymn is, at its core, it's a summary of the gospel. It is a sort of a brief encapsulation of the good news about the person and the work of Jesus. And it's given to us, as one commentator put it, not to satisfy our theological or doctrinal curiosity. It's given to us to reform our lives. So this passage that we look at today that is so rich and so filled with beauty as it communicates to us the goodness and the essence of the gospel story is given to us not only to ground us deeply in who Jesus is and what he's done for us. It certainly is intended to do that. But more than that, it's intended to shape us, to shape our individual lives, to shape our families, to shape our community and the life of our local church. So this passage this morning that we're looking at is so importantly significant and it's designed not just to ground us in truth about who God is, it is designed to do that, But more than that, that truth is designed to change us and to shape us and to transform us and to revolutionize our lives. And so for this passage, for this Christ hymn to shape us, for us to be shaped by this, we have to be immersed in the story that it tells. And so I want to think with you this morning about what is the story that this Christ hymn tells. I'm just going to give it to you on the front end. And then we're going to explore both parts of this together. The Christ hymn tells us the story of two gardens and an exalted king. That's what these verses here in Philippians 2 tell us about. They summarize this message of the gospel, the good news about Jesus, as the story of two gardens and an exalted king. So first, let's think about how this story tells us about the two gardens, referring to uh, the Garden of Eden and the Garden of Gethsemane. So we read about the Garden of Eden all the way back in Genesis chapter 1 through 3. And as we read that story, what we see is that there are two human beings who God created, who uh, put in the garden. And what we know about those human beings, there's two things we know about them. We know that they are created in the likeness and in the image of God. And that that is what is most foundational about them as human beings. The most foundational thing about them is that they are created in God's image. They're given a unique identity, a unique status, being created in his image, which sets them apart from the animals. It sets them apart from every other part of creation. But not only does being made in God's image mean that they have a unique identity, it also means that they have a unique calling and a unique vocation. God has called human beings to be co-rulers with him over his created world. God called human beings, he commissioned them to cultivate and to be wise stewards of the resources that are around them for the glory of God as an act of worship and as an act of loving service to to our neighbors, to advance the cause of human flourishing. 
And so this is what it means to be made in the likeness and in the image of God. And so we see that Adam and Eve are created in God's likeness, they're created in his image. The second thing we know is true about humans is that they are crowned with glory. Now, this comes from the book of, this comes from Psalm 8, which is actually a kind of exposition of the creation account that we see in Genesis 1 and 2. And Psalm 8 says this, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. So what that tells us is that human beings are not only created in God's image, in his likeness, they're also crowned with glory, which means that being made in God's image, what that means is that there's a kind of glory about humans simply because we're made in God's image. So we're created in God's image, we're crowned with glory, and then you see those human beings who are in the Garden of Eden, they come into an encounter with the deceiver. We read about this in Genesis chapter 3, where the Satan, the tempter, comes to Eve, and she says, did God really say that you can't eat from any of these trees? And so she calls into question the goodness and the abundance and the provision of God. Did God really say you can't eat anything from any of these trees? To which she quickly corrects him and says, no, that's not at all what he said. He said, we can eat from any of the trees, except if we eat from this one or even touch it, we're surely going to die. And at that point, the deceiver, the tempter, directly contradicts the words of God and says, okay, I just got to let you in on something here. That's not actually true. What God doesn't want you to know is that the moment that you eat from that tree you will be like God. You're not going to die. You will be like God. And so he plants this lie in the heart of Eve that God is not out for her best interests, that God is stingy, that God is holding back on her, that God doesn't love her enough to give her everything she needs. And so this lie is planted in the heart of Eve. And so she partakes of the fruit, gives some to her husband who's there with her. He partakes of the fruit. And it's in that moment there's a poison that is unleashed into the world. The poison of sin is unleashed into the world in that moment. So what we see here in the Garden of Eden is we have two representative humans who are created in God's image. They're crowned with glory. They believe the lie that the tempter tells them. And here's the connection to what we see in Philippians chapter 2. The poison of sin was unleashed into the world when Adam and Eve arrogantly grasped at God-like status. That's what happened in the garden. They grasped at God-like status, arrogantly. They believed that, no, I deserve better than this. I deserve better than what God has given me. And the the tempter says, you will be like God, which of course is absurd because If you're reading the text, you would know they are already like God. (laughs) They are already created in God's image. But they believed the lie, and sin came into the world when Adam and Eve arrogantly grasped at God-like status and sought to use it for their own advantage. And so this is what we see happening in the Garden of Eden. 
The story doesn't stop here, though. We come to the Garden of Gethsemane. And we see Jesus, on the night he's betrayed, he's with his closest disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. And what we know about him is that like Adam and Eve, he is like Adam and Eve, but very different from Adam and Eve. Remember what is true about them. They're created in God's image, and they're crowned with glory. The New Testament tells us that Jesus is not just another image bearer, but that Jesus himself is the image of God. Colossians 1, some of you are familiar with that. Colossians 1 says the the Son, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He's created in God's image as a human being, but he's also the image of God. We also see about Jesus that he is not just crowned with glory in the same way that any other normal human is, but he is the glory of God himself. The book of Hebrews in chapter 1 tells us that he is the radiance of God's glory, that when God's glory radiates outwards, we see it expressed perfectly in the person of Jesus. So Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane. He is a representative human. He is the image of God. He is the glory of God. And what we're going to see him do in the garden of Gethsemane is essentially undo what was lost in the garden of Eden. Now, before we get there, Jesus had an encounter with the tempter as well. Except Jesus' encounter with the tempter was not in a garden. It wasn't in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was actually in the wilderness, which is a kind of anti-garden. Right? The opposite of a garden is wilderness, is barrenness. So Jesus, we're told, fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. No food. So obviously, he is very hungry. And as he's in this anti-garden in the wilderness, the tempter then comes to him and says, if you really are the son of God, why don't you just turn those stones into bread? Jesus, wouldn't it be, can you just think of how satisfying it would be after 40 days of no food to crack open a steaming fresh loaf of bread and to smell it and to take that first bite Jesus, wouldn't that be so wonderful? Why don't, you just, why don't you just turn those stones into bread? And so you see what's happening here is that Jesus is being tempted by the deceiver to use his divine status for his own advantage. He's in this anti-garden, and the tempter is tempting him with food to grasp at his godlike status. Do you see the connection here? This is not unintentional that we see these recorded for us in the Bible. So what happens in the wilderness is essentially Jesus is, experiences the same exact kind of temptation that Adam and Eve experienced in the Garden of Eden. Except in every way where Adam and Eve failed, Jesus was victorious. Jesus did not grasp at godlike status. He did not use his godlike status, his divine status for his own advantage. What we see about Jesus is that in humility, Jesus refused to grasp at his divine status and used it for his own advantage. So do you see the contrast between the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve arrogantly grasp at godlike status, trying to use it for their own advantage, and then in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is wrestling not with the deceiver. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is wrestling with the Father. Jesus knows 
that God's rescue plan of salvation includes him not only taking on human flesh and experiencing the brokenness of the world that we live in, but it means that he will take on human flesh, become a servant, become a slave, and suffer and die and experience humiliation and shame of the cross. And ultimately, what would happen in that moment as he's shamed and publicly humiliated on the cross is that he would sit under the full weight of the justice of God for all of the ways that we have grasped a godlike status. For all the ways that we, like Adam and Eve, have believed the lie that God is stingy, that God is holding back on us, that God doesn't have our best interests in mind, and that if I need to be truly happy and truly satisfied, I have to look to this thing, or this thing, or this thing, or this person to provide something for me that God is just simply not giving me because he's holding back on me. And Jesus sat under the full weight of the justice of God for all the ways that we, like Adam and Eve, have lived in rebellion against God. He knew that that was what he was going to do, what he was going to endure on the cross. And he's anguishing. He's laboring in prayer with God the Father, begging God if there's any way for this to happen, a different way, please let it happen. He's so physically and emotionally and spiritually distressed that there are drops of blood in his sweat. This is an actual medical condition where when you have such incredible amount of stress, your capillaries begin to break down and bits of blood actually get into your pores. And so when he sweats, he's literally sweating droplets of blood because he's under so much anguish. But his prayer ends with, if there's any way, please let this happen. Please let this cup pass from me but not my will be done, your will be done. And so in that moment, in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is wrestling with the Father, and he's refusing to grasp at his divine status and use it for his own advantage. Jesus is refusing to say, you know, I am the Son of God. You know, I, I do deserve all glory. I don't deserve shame. He's refusing to say, I deserve unending praise and worship, not humiliation, not suffering, not this, I don't deserve to experience this. He could have grasped at his divine status, his godlike status, and used that for his own advantage, and yet in the garden, Jesus humbled himself and refused to use that divine status for his own advantage. And so do you see, this is the story that Philippians chapter two is telling us when it says, him being in very nature God did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. He didn't grasp at his divine status. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus here in the Garden of Gethsemane and ultimately at the cross is reversing, he's undoing the curse that was brought into the world in the Garden of Eden. Whereas Adam and Eve arrogantly grasped at God-like status, and sought to use it for their own advantage, Jesus humbled himself. And Jesus refused to grasp at his divine status and use it for his own advantage. So this is the story of these two gardens. But the story doesn't, start, doesn't stop there. We see that the Christ hymn tells us a story not only of two gardens, but of two gardens and an exalted king. The story doesn't end with the cross. The story doesn't end with suffering and humiliation. The story doesn't even end with the resurrection. Just a 10-second aside, 
When Jesus is resurrected from the dead in the book of John chapter 20, Jesus runs into Mary and she doesn't know it's him. Who did Mary think that Jesus was? The gardener. Hmm. Just let you ponder that for a while. The story doesn't end with the suffering, the humiliation, or even the resurrection. The story ends with Jesus being ascended and exalted and enthroned as king. That's what we see here in this passage. Therefore, God highly exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so what these verses tell us, they tell us about the ascension and the enthronement of Jesus, and what they tell us is that Jesus is not only our crucified Savior, he's our risen and exalted King. He's not just a crucified Savior, he is our risen and exalted King, and that he has been given all authority. He has been given all power. He is sovereign over all things. He is our risen and he is exalted king who is sitting on the throne. And this is part of the good news that this passage tells us about, is that there is no vacuum of power in the heavenly realm. Jesus is right now in this very moment, amidst all of the the turmoil, amidst all of everything we experience, amidst all of that, Jesus is right now currently ruling and reigning in control, in sovereign control over all things. There is no vacuum of power in the heavenly realms. And we can think about the events of this week. We can think about the events of Russia invading Ukraine. And we can think about people fleeing from their homes as refugees. And we can think about the cost of war and the toll it takes on human life. And we can think about leaders in the world jockeying for an increase in the size of their kingdom. And as we think about those events of this week, it can be easy for us to look at the world and just to think, man, it all feels so volatile. It just feels like at any moment, we could be on the brink of something even bigger than just Russia and Ukraine. This could easily snowball into something bigger than that. It feels so volatile, and those who sit here today, we feel helpless, don't we? We feel helpless, and we, we, we sort of ask in desperation, who is going to, who's going to help? Is anyone going to help? And it feels volatile, it feels helpless, and in the midst of those kinds of situations, we are reminded by Psalm 2 that the one who sits enthroned in heaven laughs. That when kings try to increase the size of their kingdom and threaten the rule and the reign of God, there is no competition. We can think about our own political situation here at home. We can think about the the division that we experience in our own country, especially in the last number of years here. We can think about that. We can think about uh, the times where we engage in the political process and the person who we wanted to get into some sort of political office doesn't make it. And in those moments, when there's war that we see around, when there's uh, the, 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 a political outcome that's not what we would want, we can still, in those moments, also be reminded that Jesus is still sitting on the throne, that Jesus has not left the throne. 
And this, this passage tells us not just the good news that Jesus is king, but it tells us the good news of what kind of king he is. It tells us that he is the creator of the universe who humbled himself and who gave up his glory, left his glory to be born in obscurity to nobody parents who were poor. There was no fanfare, there was no parade, there was no public you know, accolade, there was no uh, welcome for him as king. Jesus was born in obscurity. We see that Jesus is the one who holds all power and yet he chose to come into the world in the most vulnerable position as a baby who's dependent upon its mother for absolutely everything. We see that Jesus is the one who owes us absolutely nothing. He does not owe it to us to make a way of deliverance from the mess that we have created of our world. He does not owe that to us, and yet he, in humility, chose to take the path of suffering and humiliation so that what is broken in our world could be made new again, so that the brokenness that exists inside of us could be made whole again, and that we would have the hope of a restored new heaven and new earth. So this is the kind of king he is. And this should completely revolutionize and change the way that we engage in earthly politics. I'll be really brief on this. I think that as we are immersed in the story that, this, that these verses tell us about Jesus as the one who has undone what was done in the Garden of Eden and the one who is currently the enthroned, reigning, ruling king, that ought to change how we engage in the political sphere. As followers of Jesus, we ought to be the most confident people. We also ought to be the most humble people. We ought to be the most balanced people. There's a kind of stability that we can have as followers of Jesus in the midst of even political division, in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of war, in the midst of all the things that we see happening around us. Followers of Jesus, if we are deeply rooted in the reality that Jesus Christ is right now seated on the throne, we ought to be the most humble and balanced people the most loving people, because ultimately, those of us who belong to Christ, we do not belong to first to any earthly kingdom. What the Bible says is true about us is that if we are in Jesus, we belong to a kingdom that can never be shaken. We belong to a kingdom whose king is not rivaled by any other earthly political kingdom. And so it doesn't matter what we see, it doesn't matter what we experience, we have confidence and we have hope because of who Jesus is, because he is currently right now seated on the throne. And knowing that he is king, knowing that Jesus is king, I just want to be clear about this, is not a substitute for doing something. So please don't hear me saying, well, if we believe Jesus is king, we're just going to disengage, we're going to bury our head in the sand and just keep saying, Jesus is king, Jesus is king, Jesus is king, and just ignore everything else. That's not true. Now, if we deeply believe that Jesus is king, that means we are going to engage well in the political process. We're going to engage well. We're going to engage with wisdom and humility and grace and tact and engage as much as we possibly can in the political sphere. But what it also means is we're going to release to God what belongs to him alone. That is the authority. That is the control. We don't have to grasp at any of those things because Jesus is seated on the throne. We don't have to try and install somebody on the throne because Jesus is on the throne. And that changes the way that we engage in politics. We can let him be king because he is king. And so we know what kind of king he is. 
And this should lead us to trust him. It should lead us to trust him in every sphere of life. It should lead us to trust him, especially as we think this week about the realm of politics. We should be people who are deeply rooted in what this passage tells us about who God is. And we should be deeply uh, rooted in it in such a way that it changes the way we engage in politics. As we come to the communion table today, we are reminded of the good news that this passage tells us that Jesus has undone the curse that was brought into the world in the Garden of Eden. And we also come here with the hope, looking to the rest of Scripture, knowing that there's actually one more garden that we see in the Bible. And that is in the book of Revelation at the very end, where it talks about the new heaven and new earth and the new Jerusalem. In the middle of that city, there's a garden. So then we have the Garden of Eden, we have the Garden of Gethsemane, and ultimately we look forward to the Garden City where we as Jesus' followers get to live and reign and, and dwell with him in a world that is not corrupted, it's not stained by sin anymore. And so we get to look forward to the day when Jesus, his kingdom is fully realized. We get to look forward to the day when his kingdom comes as we have prayed even here today on earth as it is in heaven. And so we get to celebrate that Jesus has already through his resurrection from the dead and his ascension through the work he's done on the cross, he has already made that reality a guarantee for us. And so as we come forward to receive the broken body and the shed blood of Christ, we remember that Jesus humbled himself. We remember that Jesus humbled himself, suffered and died for us in our place, for our sin, and that Jesus is our ruling and exalted and reigning king. And we get to have hope because of that today. As we come to the communion table, I want to invite you to spend a few moments of silent confession and reflection. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, in word, in deed. We've sinned against you by the things that we have done as well as by the things that we have left undone. We confess, Lord, that we have not loved you with our whole heart, mind, and strength. And we confess that we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. In your mercy, we pray that you would forgive what we have been. We pray that you would help us amend what we are and that you would direct what we shall be so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. And all God's people said, amen.